0: Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forum speaker webinar series. I'm Stacy Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Douglas Fife, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, join us to discuss why the peace process will not die. Mr. Fife will speak for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type out your question. And now, with no further ado, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Douglas Feith.
1: Thanks. Uh, Stacey, and thanks to the Middle East Forum for organizing this webinar. <clears throat> I'd like to start with a bit of good news and bad news. The good news is that the Biden administration doesn't, doesn't appear to be obsessed by the Israeli-Palestinian problem. The bad news is that some administration officials, when they talk about Middle East peace, sound as if they've learned nothing and forgotten nothing since the heyday of the Oslo process of the 1990s. For decades after the 1967 Six Days War, there was a standard approach to Arab-Israeli peace diplomacy in the United States and in Israel. Now, what were the elements of this approach? First. And foremost was the belief that the conflict was solvable through diplomacy. For this to be true, the conflict had uh, could not be seen as essentially ideological in nature. If the grievance of Arabs is that Israel has no right to exist because Palestine is the religiously and nationalistically sacred and inalienable inheritance of Muslims and Arabs, then their complaint is unlikely to be satisfied by having the parties to the conflict talk to each other. Now, those who had faith in peace diplomacy defined the conflict in such a way that diplomacy made sense. They thought of it as a set of what became known as the final status issues borders, security arrangements, water rights, Israeli settlements, control over holy sites, and so on. Now, these were discrete, mostly practical issues. And it was easy to imagine that they could be resolved through mutual compromise, that is, through a peace process. The heart of the problem, according to that view, was not Israel as such, or Israel within its 1949 armistice lines, the heart of the problem rather was the West Bank and Gaza, what was referred to commonly as the occupied territories which Israel had conquered in the 1967 war. Now, fundamental to the standard approach to Arab-Israeli peace diplomacy was the idea that peace could be achieved through a process of talking. That idea assumed that both parties wanted peace based on mutual accommodation. The Israeli left assumed that their Arab neighbors were open to such a peace. In fact, after Israel in 1977 elected its first right of center government, Israeli labor leaders began to develop the thesis that the main impediment to peace was not on the Arab side, but was the Israeli right. The main impediment they said was the right's religious and nationalistic ideology, which made a fetish of Jewish control over the whole land of Israel. They said that that ideology spawned and was symbolized by Jewish West Bank and Gaza settlements. Throughout the 1980s, with politics in Israel then dominated from the right, Israelis on the left argued that their country could have peace if it only changed its own policies. That was the meaning of the famous slogan, peace now. It was saying that Israel could have peace now if it wanted it, if it chose new leaders and new policies for itself. The problem the slogan implied was the Jews, not the Arabs. The slogan made no sense if peace were not within Israel's control if it depended on Arabs unwilling to end the conflict on acceptable terms. Now, blaming Likud policies for the lack of peace naturally appealed to those American officials who were either unsympathetic to Israel in general or unsympathetic to Likud. American officials committed to peace processing embraced that view of the problem because it offered hope for progress. The United States, after all, had more leverage over Israel than over Israel's Arab enemies. Skeptics, however, argued that there was no historical basis for the idea that the Arabs were willing to make peace with Israel based on dividing the land and other mutual compromises. These skeptics disputed the notion that Arab parties were ready to make peace and that the problem was on the Jewish side. The question was put to a real world test after Rabin defeated Shamir in Israel's national elections in 1992. Rabin had effectively endorsed the view that Israel could quickly make peace with the Palestinians if it simply changed its own policies. He ran on the promise that if elected, he would have a peace deal with non-PLO Palestinians in less than a year. Rabin was elected. He then failed to make the promised quick peace deal and his failure led to his famous reluctant handshake with PLO Chairman Arafat at the White House when the two men signed the Oslo Accords in 1993. Oslo set in motion a new peace process. Israeli and American officials participated on the assumption that peace could be achieved through diplomatic resolution of those final status issues that I mentioned before. President Clinton arranged in the year 2000 to do a laboratory type experiment on the Oslo peace process. He extracted major concessions from Israeli Prime Minister Barak, concessions that far exceeded anything ever offered before and anything ever imagined to be realistic. Barak not only offered Arafat control over virtually all the West Bank and Gaza, and not only agreed to divide Jerusalem, but even offered the Palestinians sovereignty over the Temple Mount. Arafat, however, refused to make peace. He insisted that the Palestinians have a right of return. So Israel had to admit millions of them Arafat said, to the point that it would no longer be able to maintain its Jewish majority. Two of the main figures of the Israeli peace camp, the novelists Amos Oz and Ebi Yehoshua, publicly expressed their astonishment and grief at Arafat's stand. They said Barak offered everything the peace now believed was necessary, but Arafat was insisting that in addition to all those concessions, Israel had to commit suicide. Amos Oz wrote, we all very well know that around here, right of return is an Arab euphemism for the liquidation of Israel. Now, the shocking failure of Clinton's peace diplomacy with Barack and Arafat severely weakened the Israeli left. The Israeli left has not led an Israeli government for the last 20 years. Prime Minister Sharon unilaterally withdrew the Israeli presence from Gaza in 2005, but that did nothing to soften the position of Palestinian leaders. On the contrary, and Prime Minister Olmert made a Barack-style peace offer to Mahmoud Abbas in 2007 and 2008, but Abbas rebuffed it. The once dominant Labour Party has all but disappeared in Israel. Peace and security debates, which were front and center and red hot in Israeli politics throughout the 1980s and 1990s, have been almost entirely absent from Israeli election campaigns in recent years. It turns out that those who were skeptical about Oslo and the peace process were right. Palestinian leaders historically refused to compromise the principle that there can be no Arab acceptance of a Jewish majority state in Palestine. Those who said that current Palestinian leaders are maintaining that position were right. Those who said the conflict is essentially ideological were right. Those who said that peace will come only after the Palestinians have new leaders with new ideas were right. Biden administration officials, meanwhile, continually speak of their commitment to a two-state solution to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. This is not helpful, I think. It's confusing, misleading, and out of date. The term two-state solution is freighted with the thinking that motivated the Oslo peace process. People who invoke the term often imply that Palestinian leaders accept territorial compromise, but the Israeli right does not. The fact is that the current leaders of the Palestinians. Hang on one second. The fact is that the current leaders of the Palestinians have been unwilling to end the conflict on the basis of territorial compromise. They have time and again refused to agree to a two-state solution. Meanwhile, Prime Minister Netanyahu in a public speech back in 2009 at Bar-Ilan University famously accepted the idea of dividing the land west of the Jordan River between Israel and the Palestinians. He conditioned his acceptance on demilitarization and other security measures, but he made it clear that in his vision of peace, a new Palestinian state would exist beside Israel. And Netanyahu has faced election after election since 2009 and has remained prime minister to this day. So it cannot truthfully be said that the Israeli right opposes a two-state solution. Why then? do I call it unhelpful for US officials to say that they believe in a two-state solution? The answer is that the statement is ambiguous. It could mean that if and when Palestinian leaders credibly offer peace, Israel should be willing to divide the West Bank with them and accept a new Palestinian state there. That, I think, would be reasonable. Elections and polls show that the vast majority of Israelis indeed believe. It would be reasonable, but believing in a two-state solution could mean instead that one thinks that such a solution is currently available. It could be asserting that the current Palestinian leadership is ready and willing to make peace if only Israel would accept a Palestinian state. That, I think, is not reasonable, and it's refuted by the history of Palestinian-Israeli peace diplomacy going back decades. Many officials, academics, and others, whenever they're asked about Israel and the Palestinians, embrace the term two-state solution. They evidently think it makes them sound good, moderate, and peace-loving. The question is, do they understand its ambiguity? If they do, they're being cynical by not clarifying their positions. If they do not, they are ignorant. A final point on Arab-Israeli peacemaking. A key assumption of US Middle East policy for decades was that the Palestinian problem was central to the politics of the whole region. US officials commonly thought that Israel would not be able to make substantial diplomatic progress with the Arab states until it ended its conflict with the Palestinians. They also commonly thought, that US cooperation with the Arab states would be limited unless the United States successfully pressured Israel to make concessions to the Palestinians. And US officials typically feared that catastrophic explosions of the so-called Arab street would occur if the United States were seen as siding with Israel on sensitive issues such as Jerusalem. The Abraham Accords have belied all that conventional wisdom hallelujah, good riddance to it. Let's hope that U.S. policymakers going forward pay less attention to conventional wisdom and more to history. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions.
0: All right, thank you so much. So the first question we have then is, um, going to your last point, why does the U.S. think that in the past, that it knows better than the countries in the area. The Abraham Accords seems to prove that resident countries know their own interests better than the U.S. and the U.N. and so forth. Is this true?
1: Well, the I'm not sure that American officials in the past would have said that they they know the Arab countries better than the Arabs do. They just had certain assumptions about those countries that were wrong, and. Uh, one of those assumptions was that the leaders throughout, let's say the uh, the Arabian the Arab states in the Arabian Peninsula, cared intensely about the Palestinian issue, worried about the overwhelming popular support in their countries for the Palestinians, and had to limit the assertion of their own selfish national interests in order to accommodate this enormous popular sympathy for the Palestinians. So that's why they would, instead of taking every step they could possibly take to secure themselves, for example, against their Iranian enemies, they they would have to forego the help they could get from Israel because they were so concerned about how their own publics would react negatively to their accepting help from the Israelis against the Iranians. And that was a widely held view that was held in the United States uh, in government circles, in journalistic circles and academic circles. It turns out to be entirely wrong. And it's, uh, the, the proof that it's wrong is that these, uh, these Arabian Peninsula Arab states, are so concerned about Iran now, and they recognize that Israel is enormously helpful with regard to Iran, that they're willing to openly associate with, with Israel and accept Israeli help and engage in, Israel, in strategic cooperation with Israel, uh, notwithstanding whatever sympathy their public has with the Palestinians. And they are even willing to help educate their public to be more critical of the Palestinians and Palestinian leadership so that the political costs for the leaders of working with the Israelis get lowered.
0: Understood, thank you. And with the Iranian threat being a major catalyst to the Abraham Accords, do you feel the Biden administration's intention to revisit the JCPOA may rattle the Accords? And does this send a global message that the American promise is only uh relevant to the administration in place
1: i think that it's it's useful to recognize that the abraham accords resulted in part from us policy under president obama now In my view, President Obama does not deserve credit for the Abraham Accords, because what happened was President Obama was pursuing a policy of reaching out in a friendly and sympathetic way to Iran to try to cultivate strategic cooperation between the United States and Iran. This frightened and antagonized the Arab states that consider Iran their enemy. It helped push those Arab states into closer cooperation with Israel, which eventually became open cooperation and became the Abraham Accords. And so the Arab reaction, out of hostility to to Obama's policy, the Arab reaction was closer relations with Israel, because the, the leaders of those Arab countries were really, are really, deeply worried about what they can consider to be the life and death threat posed to them by Iran. Now, the Trump administration came in, recognized that, and encouraged the Arab countries in in, in their growing cooperation with Israel and helped bring the Abraham Accords into being. And where does that leave Biden and his team? Well, it seems to me that if Biden and his team continue the policy of supporting the Abraham Accords that started with Trump, then they can reinforce them. If on the other hand, they revert to the Obama policy and reach out to Iran in a way that worries the Arab leaders of the Gulf states, then they're likely to have the same effect that the Obama administration had, which is frightened the Arab leaders and pushed them closer to Israel. So it seems to me that if Biden's team supports the Abraham Accords, the Accords will get stronger. And if they effectively oppose the Accords by reaching out to Iran, the Abraham Accords will get stronger. And the reason that the Abraham Accords will get stronger in either event is because the Abraham Accords are primarily motivated not by the United States. They're primarily motivated by the fears that the Gulf Arab states have of Iran and and the recognition that Israel is enormously valuable to those states against Iran. Now, why is that? It's worth spending just a second on that. Israel's valuable. To the Gulf states, because Israel can strike the Iranians militarily, and it is doing so in with great effectiveness in Syria, for example, and it's striking Iranian proxies, the Hezbollah uh, terrorists in Lebanon, and and Israel has various technologies that it can share with the Gulf Arabs, intelligence and, tech, uh, and military technologies that are militarily valuable to them, also. Israel is the most outspoken and effective uh, opponent of Iran in Washington, D.C., and I think the Gulf Arab states recognize that pressure, effective pressure in the United States in favor of a stronger policy of resistance against Iran is largely a, a, a result of Israeli efforts. And if the Arab state tried this themselves, they wouldn't be anywhere near as persuasive and effective politically as the Israelis are in Washington, D.C. And, and so I think that that's a major source of their uh, desire to cooperate with the Israelis and encourage them to work with them on these matters. It means that Bibi Netanyahu gets a lot of credit, I believe, among the Arabs for his willingness in the Obama period to argue ag- against Iran in Washington, even when doing so was damaging his relationship with the Obama White House. This was highly controversial at the time, but I think the Abraham Accords are, in a sense, a vindication of uh, of Bibi's policy.
0: Thank you so much for that. So, are you arguing that because the conflict is ideological, there can be no real peaceful resolution to it currently? And if so, do you see any individuals or groups among Palestinians who can lead their people into accepting Israel's existence and negotiating a peace?
1: I do not believe that because the problem is ideological, there's no solution. The the solution, is a, a solution is possible if the Palestinians have new leaders with a different ideology? I don't believe that any diplomacy aimed at trying to negotiate a, a compromise peace with the current Palestinian leadership can succeed, because I think the current Palestinian leadership is ideologically committed to perpetuating the conflict. I think there also are personal incentives at work uh, that basically lock the current Palestinian leaders into their ideological opposition to to peace with Israel. Uh, I think the current Palestinian leaders worry that they would lose diplomatic attention, they would lose foreign aid, they would lose the portions of foreign aid that they get to steal through their own corruption uh, if they ever signed an agreement that said that the conflict with Israel was over. And, And it's important for everybody to recognize, I think, that this incentive system that has been put in place to reinforce the ideological extremism of the Palestinian leaders is something that the United States is partly guilty for. The Europeans are partly guilty for. The Israelis are partly guilty for. There's a lot of blame to go around for setting up. I think a really perverse incentive system, working on the Palestinian leaders. Now it happens to be it's working on an on a bunch of leaders who are themselves, in any event, ideologically extreme. But uh, the the key to the to opening the way to a possible peace agreement between Israel and the Palestinians is if the whole world that has put this bad incentive system into place were to think it through, revise its approach, and strategically, over a sustained period, try to cultivate new Palestinian leaders who don't have terrorist backgrounds and don't have ideological commitments to Israel's destruction and are actually interested in improving the standard of living and the general well-being of their people. Uh, If if the world were to work to cultivate a new Palestinian leadership of that kind and if it were to succeed, then the way would be open for Israel to conclude with that new leadership a, a peace agreement. But I just think that that continuing to do what we've been doing, which is work with PLO veterans and you know who run the Palestinian Authority or Hamas people and talk to them and try to encourage them to be you know, reasonable, pacific, and compromising, I think that's a vain exercise.
0: So, what would your policy recommendations be?
1: Uh, my my recommendation would be to to develop. a a multilateral strategy working with the Israelis, working with the Arab countries that are part of the Abraham Accords, working with the Canadians, the Europeans, the Japanese, and others who are major donors of aid to the Palestinians, and identifying people in the Palestinian community, including the diaspora community, who have the leadership qualities that are necessary, have the right attitude about how peace would benefit the Palestinians uh, and would be willing to would be willing to uh, engage with the Israelis in a cooperative way and bring into being some kind of uh, Arrangement with the Israelis, whether it's an independent Palestinian state or a federation with Jordan or some other arrangement, but bring about some kind of an arrangement through which they could terminate the conflict. Establish peace and and concentrate on improving the lives of the Palestinian people.
0: Thank you so much, and could you please elaborate more on the perverse incentive system.
1: Well, the, the perverse incentive system is that the, the Palestinian leadership now gets lavished on them diplomatic attention, honor, and money because the conflict continues. And if the conflict ended, they would lose what they value most. They would lose the money. They would lose the invitations to the White House. So they would lose the, even their own sense of, of dignity as warriors or revolutionaries in a great cause. And uh, and these are people who actually don't give a damn about the, the well-being of their own people, which makes them similar to leaders in many other countries around the world. I mean, I think a lot of people in liberal democratic countries don't quite have the imagination to understand that in most countries around the world that are not the liberal democracies, the leaders have no interest whatsoever in the well-being of the people. I mean, look at, look at how Hafez al-Assad and, and Bashar al-Assad were willing to run their country for decades with no regard whatsoever for the well-being of their people. And in the recent Civil War, uh, Bashar al-Assad showed that he's willing to kill a half a million of his own people just to stay in power. And so it's important to understand the, the these people who run their, their political communities that way are, are really evil and ill-motivated. And if they were replaced by people who had more of the attitude that prevails in the liberal democratic west which is that political leaders really should be concerned about how well their people are doing and because it's it's they're accountable to them uh that's important and if 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 the world could incentivize the rise of leaders with that attitude in the palestinian community i'm not saying it's easy to do it i'm not saying it's going to happen I'm simply saying, if they succeeded, then peace would be possible. And if they don't succeed, peace is not possible. And they may not succeed. So I'm not Pollyanna about this. I'm just saying, if you want to do something constructive, focus on getting the Palestinians new and better leaders. But pushing to try to get an agreement with the current set of leaders is a losing cause.
0: Understood. And I'm sure we could go on for another hour with all the questions coming in, but unfortunately we're out of time. Could you please let us know where we can find some more of your work?
1: Uh, There are a lot of um, pieces that I've written on the website of Hudson Institute. It's, it's hudson.org. And if you go in and you uh, look at the list of the of the fellows, the experts at Hudson and pull my Hudson page up. Uh, there are numerous articles there.
0: Wonderful, thank you so much. Unfortunately, we've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you again, Mr. fight for taking time to speak with us today.
1: My pleasure. Wonderful.
0: For our viewers, please be on the lookout for our weekly webinar offerings email coming out over the weekend. Thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a wonderful day.